0: Hebrews chapter 10, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body, but a body have you prepared for me and burnt offerings and sin offerings. You have taken no pleasure. But I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, "You have neither desire nor take pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. these are offered according to the law." Then he added, "Behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that we will, excuse me, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. to thrive in joy. But brokenness holds us captive and we need to be set free. But the good news is that Jesus rescues us, changes us, makes us holy so that we can thrive in joy both now and for eternity. Several years ago, uh, a movie came out called Mystic River, directed by Clint Eastwood. It's a dark and dirty movie. It <clears throat> has some great acting, dark plot line. Tim Robbins, Sean Penn, Kevin Bacon. If you're familiar with the story, you know these three boys grow up as friends in a neighborhood in the Boston area. And as kids, they experience a tragedy. Tim Robbins is kidnapped, found later, uh, and lives the rest of his life carrying this heavy weight of what he experienced as a kid having been kidnapped. Kevin Bacon's character grows up. He becomes a cop, pursuing justice and uh, trying to uphold the law in the Boston area. And then Sean Penn's character grows up, choosing a life of crime. He's kind of a neighborhood crime lord kind of runs the streets and mystic river is a very interesting movie if you follow what happens these kids who experience a tragedy as children and then decide to go different directions with their lives one in particular pursuing uh, a life of of crime and um, control and power and another one uh, pursuing uh, justice and the law and there's this great scene at the end of the movie i'm going to spoil it for you if you haven't seen it where there's a parade coming down through the neighborhood. Everybody in the neighborhood's out watching this parade. There's there's a marching band with music, these big floats. People are throwing out candy. Everybody's having a great time. And on one side of the street, you see Kevin Bacon, the cop upholding the law, pursuing justice. And on the other side of the street, you see Sean Penn, the crime lord who runs the neighborhood. And, you know, these guys know each other. At the end of the movie, they'd dealt with something together in two drastically different ways. And in this scene, as the parade's going on, their eyes lock, and the law-abiding, justice-upholding cop looks at his former friend, who is the neighborhood crime lord, and he looks at him with a eyes of justice and points to him and kind of does one of these uh, little gun deals. And Sean Penn's character is like, tosses his hands up like, what are you going to do? I'm untouchable, right? It's a great movie. It's a dark movie. Great writing, music, direction, acting is brilliant. But I was watching the end of this film this week thinking, what a beautiful example of how we find ourselves in our life of faith. Right? How many of us find ourselves as, as the ones that are upholding what is right and true, thinking we are right, and we want to do what's right, we want to be what's right, and we're going to stand here in all of our rightness, looking all good and right, pursuing goodness, and if we see somebody doing wrong, we point our fingers and we just say, boom, we got you. You're wrong. That is the typical, what the Bible uh, will describe as, as like a legalist, Right? Or how many of us find ourselves on the other side of the street with our hands in the air saying, What? What are you going to do? Like, look, I'm free. I can do what I want. I'm kind of untouchable. I can live the way I please. And all of us in the Christian faith tend to go from one of those sides to the other extreme. One of us, uh, we often tend to say, Look, I'm saved by grace, man. I can mess up as much as I want. There's no boundaries on my life. I'm saved by the grace of Jesus, man. What are you going to do? you Are going to try, to try to get me to obey or rebuke me or something? Oh, we're like Sean Penn, all, all awesome looking with our leather, just like, what, what? What you going to do? Or some of us are saying, no, 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 no. We have to do this. We have to abide by this. And if you don't, I'm going to get you. Now listen, I'm not picking on any one of you. I'm picking on all of you. I'm picking on me. Because as Christians, we tend to go from one of those extremes to the other. And all the while, right down the middle is this beautiful parade with music and candy and laughter and balloons. And we miss it. Because we're on one side of the street looking at the other side saying, whatever, you know, doing our Kevin Bacon or our Sean Penn, right? All the while, there is joy to be had right down the middle. Now, here's what I want us to do. I want you to think about what category you often will find yourself in. Are you the legalist that says I must do better, try harder? If I do better and try harder, maybe then I will experience this. Or maybe then God will approve of me. Or maybe then people will like me more if I do better and try harder. And I have to go down these rules in order for things to be right. Or do you find yourself on the other end saying, man, just whatever. i just give it to Jesus. Both of those are not the way that we were created to be. Neither one of those is where God would have us experience true joy. There's a parade in the middle with music and candy and balloons, and we miss it. And it's not just Christians. If you're here today and you're like, dude, I'm not a Christian, whatever. How often can your quote-unquote legalism be seen in the way you do life? It, it manifests in pride. We're like, hey, you know, I, I live in this neighborhood, so therefore I'm pretty good, right? Or, or maybe I have this kind of job, or, or maybe I parent my kids this way, or maybe my lifestyle looks like this. It can happen not only in areas of faith, but in areas of all of life. And I want us to pause for a moment and see which side of the parade we find ourselves, because all of us tend toward one side or the other, the legalist or the licentious. Which side are you on? And it is my hope and goal today that we would together look at scripture and see how God in Christ drives us to the center where we together in the gospel can experience true joy, true happiness, true holiness, true right living and not be swayed to one side or the other. So let's think about that together. Let's look at that together because I want us to see that Jesus rescues us for holiness to become who we were created to be as image bearers of God. And this word in the Bible is called sanctification. Say sanctification. I'll say sanctification like Jesus loves you. Sanctification. Man, that's awesome. Audience participation. Hey, the Walk of Faith is a community event, y'all. So there we go. Sanctification is a word that the Bible uses to talk about being holy. And it could mean both something that is positional, like you are holy. You are designated as holy. Or it's something that is progressive, like you are becoming more and more holy, becoming more and more how God wants you to be, being restored to the image of God as you were created to be, walking in joy together. So sanctification is both positional, And progressive, right? It's something that happens to you. You are holy, and it's something that you are becoming more and more holy. And the Bible uses it in this way multiple times. And we see in today's passage in verse 14 very clearly, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Key verse for us today, talking about the work of God through Christ, for by a single offering, he has perfected, that's positional sanctification, he he has perfected, you have been set apart as holy, you are holy, you are a holy object of affection and value and worth in Christ. You are holy, you have been perfected for all time. Positionally progressively those who are being sanctified. You with me? Verse 14 is key to everything we're going to look at today because in Christ we are rescued for holiness. We are restored to true joy, how God wants us to live. We are taken from the far side of legalism. We are taken from the far side of licentious living and we are brought right down the middle to experience the joy of a musical parade full of candy and balloons because we have been sanctified. We are being sanctified because Jesus Christ, a single offering, has perfected for all. All time those who are being sanctified. Now I want us to unpack this a little bit together today, and I want us to keep in mind, I want us to be honest because nobody's gonna be mad at you. I want you just in your heart to just right now pray. Jesus, reveal to me my legalism. Jesus, reveal to me my licentious attitude, and Jesus, please rescue me for holiness, bring me to the center where I can experience true joy in the gospel. With my brothers and sisters in Christ, just, that's, I want that to be our prayer as we walk through this text today. So there you have it. <clears throat> so let's see, the writer of Hebrews frames this for us so that we can see the significance of the law. Right? Because what happens with a legalist is they see the law, they say, this is what's good, this is what's right, this is the, this is the Bible, we're going to just do, 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 do. And they, and they see it, but they misunderstand and misuse the law of God. Meanwhile, you got the licentious that's just like the law of God, whatever, I'm saved by grace. Neither one of those are right view of the law of God. So I want us to start first and form us with that. I want us to see first the significance of the law of God. Because it's important. The significance of the law of God. Just look at this, the first couple of verses. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same, sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they have not ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see, in the first couple verses of chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews is not kicking the law of God to the curb. Rather, he's framing it for us to understand what the purpose and point of the law is. And when I talk about the law, I'm not talking about speeding tickets and traffic violations. I'm talking about God's instruction to his people that we see in the Old Testament. If you have a Bible, the Old Testament is full of the law of God. It's God's word. He inspired it. It is written for the benefit of God's people to reveal who he is. It is so good. And especially in our culture today, we tend to, uh, I think we tend more toward neglecting the law of God. We just say, look, that's Old Testament stuff, man. I don't see the importance of it. Let me just give you a heads up. By the end of this year, we are going to be spending significant time in some Old Testament. That's where we're going as a church. I've been preparing. I'm not going to tell you yet, but I'm just, you pray for me. We're going to spend a lot of time in the next year and a half in some Old Testament. Why? Because it reveals God's goodness. It shows us Jesus. And what the Bible says here is it reveals to us a reminder of sin so that we, we can see how much we need our Savior. And so we see first and foremost the significance of the law is that, is that on one hand the legalists misunderstand the law as an end to itself. They say, well, this is God's, God's word, this is his Bible, so I want to do this and do that and X, Y, Z. That way God will love me. That way God will approve of me. That way God will accept me. That way, that way God will let me have a lot of friends. If we all can just do these things together, then we'll be good together, Right? That misses the point of the law. That's not the significance of the law of God. Uh, and meanwhile, the licentious are saying, I don't need it because Jesus took care of everything, just whatever the law, whatever it is, Jesus. And we neglect so much of God's word that's here for our benefit today. Scripture says in verse 1, the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. The shadow is not a, a bad thing there. You can, you can see uh, that same word is used in Scripture. I mean, do you think about the shadow of death? But it's not, it's not an ominous bad thing. It is, it is kind of a, a glimpse or a foreshadowing or kind of a, an image. Like if you're ever playing outside, I mean, some of you guys up front can see right now, if you look on the floor, you can see the shadow of some butterflies. You're like, what are you talking about? There's, we're at a school so there's children's crafts hanging throughout our sanctuary, right? And if you look on the floor up here, you can, I can look at the floor and say, look, there's, there's some, something butterflyish around here, right? I can't see the, the colors. I can't see the, the true shapes. Um, they're not butterflies. Those are Mardi Gras masks. <laughs> All right. That analogy failed. Or there's a butterfly back there. I do see some butterflies back there. Pretend there's a butterfly, please. <laughs> Good grief. That analogy did not work at all. The point being is you can get a glimpse of something there, but not the fullness of what's there. But the shadow existed. I mean, I, I, didn't see what was, I honestly did not see what was hanging in the window until I was looking at the floor. And so I'm like, hey, look, there's there's something, there must be something, there's a shadow there. Let me look. Oh, there. The shadow drew my eyes upward to what was hanging in the window. And there's where the color and the shape and the form is. And I'm like, wow, that's fantastic elementary school art. In the same way, verse 1 says, the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. A shadow. The shadow is important, though. The the law is important. The purpose of the law is for you to get a glimpse of something that's going to draw your eyes upward so that you can see the full shape, the full color, the full glory of what's to come. That's part of the purpose of the law. And, And we get spoiled when we neglect the Old Testament. We fail to see the full story, the full picture of what is going on cosmically with God's redemption of his people. So friends, let me encourage you. Let us not neglect the shadow of the good things to come. And as a legalist, you focus on the shadow. You say, what a glorious shadow. Let me just grab that shadow. And if I can unpack that shadow, I will be a better person. I will be better. I'll be good, and I'll find people that aren't good, and I'll make them good with this shadow. And you miss the point. You miss the point that the shadow is to draw you upward. Right? You become a legalist and licentious people just neglect the shadow. There's a shadow there, everybody, and you need to look at it, right? Scripture tells us in verse four, sorry, in verse three, that the sacrifices are a reminder of sins every year. Let me frame it for you this way. Before Christ came, even upward into the first century, uh, the religious tradition of God's people was to offer sacrifices, particularly once a year on the Day of Atonement, uh, priests would go into the temple and sacrifice an animal, shed the blood uh, on uh, behalf of, of their people, of the villages, of the towns, even the priests themselves would have to offer sins for themselves. Right? It was something they did year after year after year. They were following God's law. They were following God's instruction. They were doing God's will in that regard. But the purpose of that was not only an act of worship for the people, but it was made to be a reminder that they're going to have to come back next year. We have to come back next year and do this again. Why? Because we're going to sin sometime in the next year. I mean, priests would go up and slaughter an animal, do a sacrifice, and as they walk out of the temple, be preparing for next year. We've got to do it all over again because we need to be rescued. We're going to slip... To one side or the other, we're not going to be walking in the joy that God created us to walk in. We're going to blow it sometime in the next year. The village will blow it. Somebody's going to blow it. That's part of the reason the law exists. It's not only a shadow of the good things to come, but also to remind us that we need to be rescued. But here's the good news. The law exists for that purpose. Let me tell you some more bad news first. A couple of books have been written, and if any of you have read these books, I would like to talk to you because I've not had a chance to read them. A couple of years ago, uh, some guy wrote a book about living biblically, and he tried to like follow all these Levitical laws or something, and then more recently, a woman wrote a book about trying to live like a biblical wife, and I've not read the books, I've skimmed them, but the whole premise of the book seems just non-gospel to me because it's all about trying to do, 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 do what's right so that what at no point when i skim through the book did i say hey you know what jesus (laughs) and if you've read those books come talk to me and i'll preach a different sermon next week and say oh my bad because many of us fall into that trap of trying to do the rules and the laws trying to live such a way and we miss the point that the shadows to point us to something more beautiful more colorful more perfect than ourselves his name is jesus and also that uh, that it's supposed to remind us of our sin that we can't dig ourselves out of, that we need a rescuer. See, two points. The significance of the law that we see in this, there's a lot more to the law than that, by the way. There's a lot more to the Old Testament. But two things that the writer of Hebrews points out in this passage for us, significance of the law is that it's a shadow of the good things to come. And secondly, that it's to remind us of our sin and our need for a Savior. Need for a rescuer. So I want you to think right now, as I asked you to earlier, do you tend to be a legalist that focuses on the shadow instead of what the shadow reminds us to look to? Do you tend to be a legalist and say, wow, I need to do this. This will save me. This will make me better. Or do you say, wow, this reveals how broken I am. I wish somebody would rescue me. And Jesus is like right here rescuing you. Here's some good news for us all. Jesus upholds the law perfectly on our behalf. If you read the Old Testament and you say, wow, some guy wrote a book about trying to live like that, good for him. Really? Well, here's what the Bible says is that I can't do that. I'm going to fail. I'm going to break those laws at some point. And we'll just start with the Ten Commandments, right? You know, here's a couple. Don't murder, don't commit adultery. Right now, some of you may have some other person in your mind besides your spouse. That's adultery. Some of you right now may have some sort of bitterness, anger towards somebody. That's just just looks like murder. That's what Jesus says. So we're already breaking the Ten Commandments, right? Well, here's the good news. It's like, don't feel bad. Look to Christ. Here's the good news. Jesus upholds the law perfectly on our behalf. In Matthew 5:17, he says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. See, the point of the shadow is to look to Christ. The point of the shadow is to say, look, here's some good things coming. Here's Jesus. The point is to say, wow, this reveals my sin and brokenness. I need a rescuer. And that rescuer is not me. The law does not exist to tell you how to do better and try harder. It exists to say, you're so broken, you can't do these things perfectly. But look who did. His name is Jesus. And Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, I've not come to, to abolish the law, but to Fulfill the law and the prophets. Jesus succeeds perfectly where you and I fail. And that's good news. And for some of you, it may be hard to let go of the legalism, but, but, but I want to, but we're going to get to the obedience part. So hang with me because we obey because we're loved. We obey because God accepts us. We obey because Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf. That's why we obey. Not so that we will be loved and accepted. So hang with me. And licentious folks, you're like, what's obedience? I'm saved by grace. Well, we got to have a talk. <laughs> you're saved by grace so that you can obey. We'll get there too. Hang with me. I'm getting to the end. Something else Jesus said, not only is that he came to fulfill the law and prophets, but also is that all the law points to him. In Luke 24:44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So friends, here's the deal. Read the Bible from left to right and then left again. Read the Old Testament. Soak it in. Read the New Testament and see what Jesus did to fulfill all of those Old Testament expectations. And then go back and read the Old Testament again, and you'll see it in a different way. Too many of us read the Old Testament from left, and we just kind of camp out there, and we forget to read the New Testament part two of what God was doing. And then some of us get stuck in the New Testament, and we fail to go back and read the Old Testament again and see, wow, that, God's been doing this a long time. I can trust Him, He knows what He's doing. So read the Bible from left to right. Okay, we'll do from left to right, and then left again. So first and foremost, the writer of Hebrews shows us the significance of the law. So in your hearts, if you tend to be a legalist, if you tend to be a licentious person, Let us see that the law is not meant to be an end of itself, nor is it meant to be totally disregarded, but rather there is a purpose God has for his law, and that's to point us to Christ and to reveal that we need a rescuer, okay? And that's what the writer of Hebrews tells us. But secondly, I want us to see this. Not only do we see the significance of the law, oh wow, this is good, the sacrifice of Christ, okay? Verse 5 goes on, this is so cool, man. This is what I like about the writer of Hebrews, is he's like, look, the Old Testament's important, and just to show you it's important, I'm going to quote some of it for you. Huh? I mean, if it wasn't important, why would he even quote it? He wouldn't. And it's a he, I think. So anyway, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you you prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. But then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book." And he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law, right? They're good. They're they're done according to the law. But then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. and, And by that will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily in the service, repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Man, this is so good. The sacrifice of Christ, right? All right. As the writer of Hebrews starts quoting the Psalms here. Psalm 40, remember what I just said? Jesus himself said, hey, these are my words I spoke while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Here's what's cool. We just look to see the significance of the law and that Jesus fulfilled that. And Jesus said, hey, the Psalms, prophets, the law, so he's done the law. Here we see Psalms. So Jesus has fulfilled what the psalmist was saying would happen, right? When God was going to redeem his people, right? So, so the psalmist is quoted here from Psalm 40. The writer of Hebrews quotes a couple verses from Psalm 40. Now, anytime you see one or two sentences in the New Testament that quote the Old Testament, you can't just take that one sentence. You've got to take the whole package, right? And so for a first century Jewish Christian, a first century person that's saying, hey, I want to follow Jesus, but I have these roots in my Jewish tradition, my culture, my family, they would know very well Psalm 40. And so for the writer of Hebrews to drop a couple of verses from a couple sentences from Psalm 40 would bring to memory the whole Psalm. It's like you and I could say, row, row, row your boat. Well, you know what happens next. Gently down the stream, merrily, 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 right? I don't have to sing the whole song to you. I can just say, row, row, row your boat, and you know it, right? In the same way, a first century Jewish Christian who would, who would hear this quoted, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, boom, all of Psalm 40 is in their mind. And if you read Psalm 40, you will see, that it is uh, the context of of thanking God for his kingship and, and thanking God for, for God being in control and, and that there's obedience that can, be ha- that can happen in the context of God's will. It's just a really great psalm. You should read it. Psalm 40. Read the ones before and after. Just read the book of Psalms. It's beautiful. And here's what the point is. As the writer of Hebrews, just like he said, here's the significance of the law to shadow for better things is to show us our brokenness. Part two, let's see the sacrifice of Christ. Jesus fulfills the law, but look, he also fulfills the Psalms. The Psalms that say, hey, look, be thankful to the Lord, obey the Lord and his kingship. And that's exactly what Christ does. You see, Jesus has verse 10 says, um, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. See, Jesus was a perfect person. He lived the perfect life that you and I should live, but we can't. Jesus made a sacrifice on our behalf, the priest that did it year after year after year. Jesus said, let me just take care of this once for all. And he did. His life was perfect so that our broken lives could be restored to holiness and joy. His sacrifice was perfect so that we can once for all have our sins dealt with. Therefore, we don't have to run to legalism saying, I need to do better, try harder, because Jesus says, look, my sacrifice is taking care of that. My perfect life is taking care of that. Nor do we be licentious and say, well, what do we need to obey for? We're saved by grace. On the contrary, we are saved by grace, but on the contrary, we are to obey because of Christ's sacrifice for us, because Christ is the obedient servant, and we are in God's image redeemed to be like Christ. That's what Christian means, little Christ. Not that you save yourself, but you walk like Jesus in obedience, in joy, in thanksgiving to the Father, in trust. The sacrifice of Christ is permanent on our behalf. Our sins were dealt with. Uh, Verses 12 and 13 actually quote Psalm 110. So you should go read all of Psalm 110 now to get a framework for that. When he says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. It's an allusion to Psalm 110. All right, so for Jesus to sit down at the right hand of God tells us so much about Jesus. Jesus. Right? Nobody can sit next to God unless he's God's equal. Jesus is the Father's equal. right? Trinity, God the Father, Jesus the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus' sacrifice was perfect. He's equal to God under the Father's authority. Perfect, secure, accomplished work is what we get. Praise be to God. Thirdly, I want us to see this as I approach the application points for all of us because you're all like, wow, man, I I tend to be legal, but what do I do? I tend to be licentious, what do I do? We're going to get to that part. So first we see the significance of the law. Jesus fulfills the law. We see the sacrifice of Christ. Jesus fulfills the Psalms. Thirdly, we see the sanctification of believers, and this is really exciting because like I said, verse 14 just busted out for us. a single offering he has perfected, so we have been sanctified positionally, for all time, for those who are being sanctified, we are being sanctified uh, progressively we are being we are holy, and we are being made holy, which is so exciting and look what the author says here continues in verse fifteen, The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. He adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is so exciting to me. And by the end of this next 18 sentences, I hope every one of you is smiling. See, the sanctification of believers... Oh, I just got to say this part real quick. The writer of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah... Chapter 31, who's Jeremiah? He's a prophet. So remember in Luke how Jesus said, hey, I've not come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill the law, the prophets, psalms, everything that was written about me in the law, the prophets, the psalms. Well, boom, chapter 10 of Hebrews shows us that Jesus fulfills the law, fulfills the psalms, here he's fulfilling the prophets, right? The writer of Hebrews is quoting Jeremiah 31 that was written to God's people through the prophet Jeremiah during a time of bondage and exile and oppression and things aren't going well. And the author and the prophet Jeremiah, like speaking on behalf of God, gives this beautiful message, this beautiful promise: a covenant, I will make with them after those days," declares the Lord, "I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds." So, Jeremy, wait a second. Earlier you said legalists tend to see the law and just see it as an end to itself. And then over here you said licentious uh, kind of disregard the law. And, and I don't know whether you're telling me how to obey and what the purpose of the law is. Well, guess what? When it comes to sanctification, when, when God sets you apart as holy, and then he says I'm going to ongoingly, progressively make you more and more holy, he quotes Jeremiah that says as a covenant people, people that are in a relationship with God and each other, God is going to put his laws on our hearts, write them on our minds. See, the law of God is greatly significant. It is intertwined with the identity we have as God's people, as covenant people. It means a, it's like a marriage. A covenant relationship is like a marriage. It's it, We have been... Uh, redeemed by our Heavenly Father who's adopting us as children. It's like a a, a groom saying to a wife, "You, you are mine and I will love you and care for you. And it is a beautiful quote from the prophet Jeremiah. I mean, imagine being in bondage, in exile, being oppressed. Many of us are. I mean, not physically, but how much sin and effects of sin do you carry around with you? How much guilt and shame are you carrying around with you? I mean, maybe you've lived a reckless life and you're like, man, I have done so many stupid things. It hurts me. And the effect, I mean, I try to got myself back in order, but man, the mistakes from 10 years ago still hurt me. And you're carrying around this heavy guilt and heavy pain and heavy shame. Likewise, those who say, well, I've never done anything wrong. I've always been right. You are carrying a very heavy weight of pride and a very heavy weight of fear because you're afraid if you mess up, you will lose your position before the Lord or you will lose your progress toward holiness. Here is the good news. The verse 14 says, since Jesus' single offering has perfected, you positionally are secure before God the Father. I mean, Jesus sits right next to God. That gives him that same authority, that same security, that same power. Verse 14 says, he has offered a single offering he has perfected for all time. Positionally, you can go before the king of the universe with not pride, not fear, Not guilt, not shame, but confidence, humility, and joy. Because Jesus positionally has set you apart as holy. He has sanctified you. He has said you are an object of beauty and and I love you and you are just, I'm going to care for you. You are an object of great value and worth to me. Positionally, you are secure. That's what sanctification means in that regard. Progressive sanctification means you ongoingly are being made more holy. And for the prophet to be quoted here, that the laws will be on your hearts and on your minds, there is a character transformation that happens. There is an identi- it's an identity marker. In the Old Testament Jewish context, the law was connected with identity. And so for God to say, I'm putting my law in your heart and your mind, He's marking you as His child. You are no longer defined by the bondage you find yourself in, by the oppression or exile you may feel. You are defined by who God has made you and positioned you to be, and how He is ongoingly, progressively working that into your life through sanctification. And that's exciting, mind-blowing. If you are married, you will understand this greatly. We use marriage analogies a lot because the Bible uses marriage analogies a lot. And a legalist who misunderstands the purpose of the law would be like a person saying, I am going to date you and date you, and I'm going to take you on a perfect date every Friday. We will always go to your favorite place. I will always tuck in my shirt. I will always open the door for you. We will always get your favorite dessert. And 90 years pass, and you never put a ring on it. A licentious person is the one that says, "Let's get married," and you get married, and then you say, "Okay, I'm going to go uh, on a fishing trip with my buddies, and I'll just catch up with you in about 90 years. I'm done. I'm done dating you. I mean, we done got married. So what do you want from me?" Sean Penn, hands in the air. What do you want from me? Those are the two extremes we see, and for. God to redeem us, to mark us as his, to sanctify us positionally says, let me put you in your place. Boom. And let me ongoingly show you how you are to live. So it's not the person that dates forever and never puts a ring on it. And it's not the person that pops a ring on it and then disengages for the rest of the life. It's the person that says, here's a ring. And let us continue to date and grow. And some, some of you in this room have been married a very long time. And you know how God grows you together as a couple, as a husband, as you start to uh, learn how to love and lead and serve your wife more and more. And then wives, as you learn how to support your husbands and you grow together in this relationship. I mean, I, I've gotten to know some of, some of the folks in this room that are older than me. We'll leave it at that. For those of you who are a little older than me, and some of you have been married uh, almost as long as I've been alive and just getting to spend a little time with you, I just hear these great stories. I'm like, well, that's a beautiful portrait of sanctification. No wonder the Bible uses that example. In the same way, a covenant relationship with God, as God says from Jeremiah, this is my covenant I will make with them. He's saying, I am like a groom who is going to make you my bride A one-time event. You have been, like verse 14 says, you have been perfected. And then I'm going to date you for eternity. (laughs) Right? Going to sanctify you ongoingly. And that is great news. So what does that look like for you and I today? And we see, hopefully, what you've been able to track with today is you can see the significance of the law it's not to be an object of your affection, but to point you to Christ, and it's not meant to be ignored, but it's meant to point you to Christ, and, and then you've seen the sacrifice of Christ as he fulfills the law and the prophets and the Psalms, just like he said, he did it, he's done it, it's amazing, out of that we get the sanctification as believers, which means we have been positionally set apart as holy, and that we are ongoingly becoming more and more like Jesus, more and more holy, more and more restored to joy, taken from this side of the street with our fingers pointing into the parade of candy and music taken from over here like what do you want for me into the parade with music and candy and joy and we all move forward together and parades are amazing in the body of Christ so what does that look like for you and I today? A couple identity markers of people who have been sanctified and who are ongoingly being sanctified. There is personal stuff that will happen. There's stuff in a community context that will happen. There's stuff that cities are changed when God's people, they're sanctified. Cities are changed. Cities that are slap full of non Christians will be changed because God says, I'm going to change an individual, I'm going to change a couple, I'm going to change a family, I'm going to change a, a church community, and out of that, a whole city will be blessed. Jeremiah said it not too far from these set of verses about seek the welfare of its city, of your city, because in its welfare, you will find your welfare. I mean, the prophet Jeremiah is saying, Hey, people, we are God's people. God's putting his law in our hearts and our minds. He's going to change us personally and corporately. But you know what? The city will be blessed when that happens. So here's a couple markers I want you to think about because you need some application getting out of here. I want to teach you and feed you and fill your brain and hopefully God will do something. But I also want to give us a couple things to really to do. Some to-do things. Not do these things so that you hopefully you know that's not what I'm saying not do these things so that you'll be loved so that you'll be accepted no jesus has accepted you jesus loves you because of that as a people who are who are god's people who are ongoingly being sanctified together a couple things that even these verses point out to us point out to us right first we see that there's going to be um character change in your heart and your mind so it says. i will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds so i want to I want to instruct you in this regard. Read the Bible. Personally. Read the Bible. God, by His Holy Spirit, His Holy Spirit inspired the Word to be written, has preserved it for our benefits. You open your Bible, the Holy Spirit will work in your mind and on your heart, revealing sin, revealing your need for a Savior, reminding you of the promises and the fulfillment of Christ. And, And within that, you will repent of sin. Not saying I need to do better, try harder, but saying, man, I blew it. Jesus saved me. And you can say, I did really, really good. Jesus still saved me. That's what you need to do. Even in your successes, repent and cling to Jesus. Read the Bible. If you need help getting on a personal Bible study, talk to somebody. We want to get a copy of the Bible in everybody's hands so that you can read it. We'll put it on tape for you. If anybody has a tape player, We'll buy an iPod for you and put it on that. You should not have a tape player. That's a church discipline issue. I'm just kidding. <laughs> we want to get the word of God in your mind, in your hearts personally. Another way to do that is sanctification in this context, especially is like those who are being sanctified. I love verse 14. Man, that thing has haunted me all week. It's been great. A single offering he has perfected for all time. Those. Those. There are other people being sanctified in this room, and you, you may not even know them. You should get to know them. What I'm saying is the Bible needs to be in your heart and in your mind personally, but also, man, some friendships, some discussions. Many of you guys are in missional communities. Let me just tell you, man, this past season of missional community, we can't go a lot. i got a big family. I have a lot of, a lot of church responsibilities that call me away, but, man, when we go... To have, I don't lead it, I don't teach it, just to sit in a room with other believers and hear what God is doing and have them minister to my soul? For me to sit under a friend of mine's teaching, let him instruct it? Oh my goodness, get in a missional community. Just get in one. Even if you can't go every week, just go as much as you can. Find a group of other believers to get connected with. We call it DNA groups, discipleship, nurture, accountability. We want you more than anything to have people massage the gospel into your Hard head and hardened heart. And we all have it. I'm not picking on you. Just have somebody massage the gospel into that heart of yours and that head of yours. Oh, it's beautiful. It's exciting. Scripture says that I will put my laws on their hearts. I will write them on their minds. When you open the Bible, when you discuss the Bible, trust the Lord to do that. Because he will. He promised it. He will put that good news in your brain and in your heart. Okay? There's some other good identification markers. In verse 17, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering of sin. Forgiveness. Friends, let me tell you something. If you are walking in a spirit of unforgiveness, whether you have done some horrible wrong, or you're carrying around guilt or shame or something from your past, we want to encourage you with the gospel to be released from that. Because Jesus forgives you for that. I don't want you to walk in the darkness of your past or your, your, man, I just, I love you guys and I want more than anything for us to experience joy together being freed from the heaviness of, of our broken past. On the flip side of that, if you are carrying around an unforgiving spirit, we want God to take that from you. Because if right here, God says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. If God is forgiving, who are we to not forgive somebody? In verse six eighteen, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering of sin. How many of you have experienced some sort of friction or wrongdoing and, and somebody just can't let it go? And you're like, you know what that is? That's saying um, there still needs to be more offering for that sin. Right? Uh, You know, over the years, my loud mouth has has caused friction with some friendships. And I just thank God when my friends say, hey, I'm going to love you like Christ. I forgive you for that stupid thing you said. Let's move on. Oh, great. I've had other instances where people will say, I can't believe you said that. I'm not your friend anymore. I'm going to take my ball and go play somewhere else. And I'm like, well, verse 18 says that there's forgiveness and no longer a need for an offering of sin. So if you're telling me you're not going to be my friend anymore because I said something stupid, that means you think there needs to be another offering of sin. That means that you don't think Jesus is God. So friends, let me tell you something. It's a very very touchy subject for me. When we do not forgive one another, as the Bible says in numerous places that we ought to do, we are neglecting the sacrifice of Jesus and saying that there needs to be more sacrifice than Jesus' sacrifice for there to be forgiveness in this relationship. I don't want to forgive you. You need to do X, Y, and Z. That is anti gospel. The gospel says where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering of sin. That means you can walk in freedom. You can say, God, I blew it when I was in college. Thank you for restoring me. And then you can walk in obedience. Oh, we're about to get to that one. (laughs) Maybe I'll just put that one on the back burner. I'll let you guys simmer on that one. If you really believe that Jesus is the king of the universe, that he has made the ultimate sacrifice, that he sits next to God the Father, and if you believe the Bible is true when it says that God will remember your sins and lawless deeds no more, and where there's forgiveness there's no longer any offering for sin needed, if you believe that, I'll just let God wreck your heart with that this week. And if you are carrying around heavy burdens, I pray that God will release you because His Word is true and you need to be released from this bondage. And if you're trying to heap heavy bondage on somebody else because of their past, I just pray that God will bring you to quick repentance and you could join the parade. Amen. Right. Okay, one more thing. Good grief. I'm sweating up here. Where's my organ player? (laughs) We don't have a keyboard up here. Um, So I just want us to see those couple things. There's a personal heart and mind transformation. There's community transformation. There is ongoing forgiveness. And my final point. This is actually the biggest point. I should have just skipped to this one, but it will make it quick. Uh, The Holy Spirit is present. That is a huge marker that we are sanctified and are ongoingly being sanctified. Because verse 15 says, the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. That's a huge statement. The Holy Spirit bears witness to us. That means the Holy Spirit of God, the Trinity of God, God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy if you were a Christian, it's the Holy Spirit that ignited your heart to receive that good news. If you're a Christian and you say, I believe, the only way you could say that is because the Holy Spirit gave you the understanding and the power to even say, I believe in Jesus. So the Holy Spirit that saves you is the Holy Spirit that keeps you saved, is the Holy Spirit that marks your heart for redemption, Ephesians says. The Holy Spirit is the one who is shaping you to be more like Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit that has given you an understanding in your mind, in your heart. It's the Holy Spirit that gives you an understanding that you have been forgiven. It's the Holy Spirit that gives you power to forgive others like Jesus. It is the Holy Spirit that inhabits the praises of our of God's people. So when you open the word of God, you will understand. When you worship, you will experience the presence of the Holy Spirit. When you pray, you know your prayers are being heard and will be answered because of the Holy Spirit. When you repent of sin, you do that because the Holy Spirit is prompting you and you will confess and believe that you have been forgiven because the Holy Spirit is doing that. When you gather with God's people, the Holy Spirit is present. When you don't gather, gather with God's people, You fill in the blank. The Holy Spirit is at work in the lives of individuals, couples, families in this church. And I believe that God is up to something in this city. Join the parade. It's a grand, good time. Let me pray. Father God in heaven, I thank you that you were good, that you were holy. God, I thank you that you rescue broken sinners. God, I thank you that you rescue the broken people like me who are goofy and aloof and tend to be licentious. God, I thank you that you rescue me and my type of people. God, I thank you that you rescue uh, those who tend to be more legalistic and say, Wow, do better, try harder. How dare somebody not raise their kids that way or worship that way? God, I pray you rescue them as well. God, I pray you draw us in from the sidelines where we are either distracted or self-involved. And God, I thank you that you destroy those things that distract us from you. God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit... In this room, even now, for those who don't know you at all, who are just like, man, I don't even know what he's talking about. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would ignite belief in the hearts and minds of those who don't know you. God, for those who have never heard the good news, God, I pray that this sentence will ring true. That the good news is that God saves broken people and that in Jesus you are loved and accepted and valued. God, may that good news resonate with non-believers and believers alike. God, for those in the room who are believers, I pray that you would break us in areas that need to be repented of. And God, that by your Holy Spirit we would repent of pride, of fear, of guilt, of shame, of stubbornness, of legalism, of licentiousness, of self-righteousness, of goofy aloofness. And God, that you would restore us to be a joyful people, shaping us how you want us to be. God, that we would experience a movement of your Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds. In our relationships, that there would be mass forgiveness. That there would be mass love and mass joy and mass service to one another as Christian brothers and sisters. But also that that good news would ripple out through this broken, sweet little southern river city called Augusta. And, God, that somehow you would do amazing things in this little town that would just wreck and rumble through the earth for your glory and for our joy and that the good news of Christ would advance to the nations, we ask in Christ's good and holy name. Amen.